Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Father Johanna Aziz on the topic Orthodoxy and Heresy, Ancient Battles on Modern Battlegrounds. This August 2010 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Father Johanna Aziz is a Maronite priest and is currently the research officer to the Maronite Bishop of Australia. Speaking here, um, you're known in Lebanon, except that in Lebanon we call you by your name in the sacred language of Aramaic, which is Nuhro Shariro. Um, so I'm, I'm pleased to be here. My topic is Orthodoxy and Heresy, Ancient Battles on Modern Battlegrounds. But first of all, I think it wouldn't hurt if I tell you just a little bit about who I am not because the information is edifying in itself, but sometimes a little introduction will help. Because what I wish to speak about relates to the very important question of tradition. Okay. I took the name Yohanna, which is the Syriac equivalent of John, when I was ordained a subdeacon recently. I'm a late vocation. I say that if I was any later, I'd be a posthumous vocation. Yes. So I did a law degree and a PhD in ancient history at the University of Sydney. I had a good career as a solicitor. I was a solicitor for 23 years. I also lectured in law at UTS. I, I've written a number of books. I've written a number of academic articles. But the best move I ever made was giving all that up in order to become a candidate for the priesthood. I've been living in Lebanon for three years and I've been studying at the seminary of Ghazir, which is a little bit northeast of Beirut and is the Maronite Patriarchal Seminary. So I'm becoming a Maronite Catholic priest. And our seminary is the Patriarch's own seminary. The Patriarch is the head of our church, subject to the Pope. I study at a university called the University of the Holy Spirit, which is in a little town called Kaslik on the Mediterranean coast. It's a beautiful, picturesque setting. You have your coffee looking at the raves coming in from the Mediterranean. The monks that run the university say that they put the premium on orthodoxy. So it's a good traditional theological background. In addition, when I was doing my PhD, I did my PhD on the Phoenician solar theology. And that meant that I had to look at the soul of theology in Egypt and Israel. And so I came to publish academically as well in the Old Testament. I did some Old Testament uh, research, particularly relating to this idea of the sun and using the sun as a symbol to express um, ideas connected with the deity. I also wrote a thesis about Ignatius of Antioch, and it was very interesting. I got a chance to look at a lot of the academic writings on Ignatius and his time. And the thing that really struck me and has been striking me more and more since is this idea which you could almost call it the received opinion in the study of ancient Christianity that there is no one orthodox teaching in early Christianity. That orthodoxy is not established until about the time of the Council of Nicaea and afterwards. That orthodoxy is just a word that means our party and our party is right. So that the theory is that orthodoxy is like speaking about left or right. 
or here and there. I'm orthodox because I'm in the right. You're a heretic because you're in the wrong. And then the heretics say, no, we're orthodox because we're in the right. You're the heretic because you're in the wrong. So I came to look at that um, many years ago when I was studying at the University of Sydney. And then over the intervening years, the Gnostic documents started to reach a larger audience. I'm sure you've heard of the Gnostic documents. Has anyone not heard of the Gnostic Gospels? You'll all have heard of the Gospel of Judas for sure. And leading commentators have been speaking about the Gnostic Gospels, saying here is an authentic early form of Christianity which taught something different from what we're teaching today. There's no reason why these ideas should be consigned to the rubbish dump of history simply because the people who held those ideas are no longer around. Just because they were beaten by the champions of Nicene orthodoxy does not mean we should ignore the Gnostic scriptures. And that position is held by academics. It's held by the former professor at the University of New England. It's held by one of the professors of theology at Harvard University, Karen King. When I started studying theology at the University of the Holy Spirit in Lebanon, I revisited all these ideas. Now, nothing like this is taught at the University of the Holy Spirit. In fact, if they mention something like, for example, feminist theology, they only do it in order to get a laugh. But what I did was, because I had an interest in this and because I could see the ideas were spreading in other circles, in Christianity and in the world in general, I tried to make more of a study of it to bring my understanding of it up to date. And so that's what I'm going to be speaking about tonight. Orthodoxy and heresy. Are they real terms with specific content or are they simply relative terms which refer to, sorry, which only have meaning when spoken by someone who is trying to define themselves as in the right and thereby trying to paint other people as in the wrong. That's the topic for tonight. And I'm going to look at it with reference to three main areas. The New Testament, the letters of St. Ignatius, and the Gnostics. If I can, I'd like to say a good deal about St. Ignatius. He's tremendously important for reasons which I hope to be able to get into. But the first thing is the New Testament. As you know, and if you don't know, stop me and tell me, modern biblical scholarship is fundamentally the scholarship which was created in Germany in the 19th century. Now, there are arguments, there are many diverse streams in modern biblical scholarship. But as a rule, it's fair to say that the modern historico-critical method of examining the New Testament and the Old Testament was formed in Germany in the 19th century. And in respect of, New, of Old Testament studies, the dean of German scholarship was a cap chap called Julius Wellhausen. In respect of New Testament studies, it's not so obvious. There are several different people, but one of the most important is Martin Dibelius, and another one is Rudolf Bultmann. But also, there have been many others. There's been Ferdinand Christian Bauer and Walter Bauer. What it means when it comes to the New Testament is that you discern layers in the New Testament. For example, if you take the Gospels, 
you don't accept the Gospels as being a single integral document created by one person in one sitting, as it were. The Gospels we have them are seen as being the end process of a lengthy period of redaction or editing. Is anyone unfamiliar with these ideas, this way of reading the New Testament, the Gospels? We've all come across. I'm, 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 I'm finding it interesting. Who, who, were these uh, German scholars uh, Protestant? Yes, yes. It begins in Protestantism. It, and and that's, a, that's actually a very important aspect of it. It begins in Protestantism. And what was their motivation for um, analysing all these different levels? I mean, you know, you know, for 1,900 years before that, what were they doing before? The finding of different sources in the biblical documents began even earlier. Um, and there are some famous names. The philosopher Benedict Spinoza from the 17th century and the French physician Jean Astruc, among others, claimed to find different documents in the Bible. For example, if you read the Old Testament in Hebrew, different names are used for God, two of them in particular, one Yahweh, the other one Elohim. And the question was, why would they use different names for God? Maybe we've got two different sources, two different ways of looking at God, maybe they come from different times. So the idea was there, but I think at the end of the day, the real reason that this is, sorry, that Protestantism is predisposed to this type of analysis of the Bible is because of the bibliolatry of Protestantism. What Protestantism does, it takes the Bible in the abstract. You see, before Luther came along, people understood that the Bible was part of the teaching of the church. They understood that our Lord had founded the church. And the Bible, as it were, belonged to the church. And Augustine said, I would not accept the Bible were it not for the say-so of the church. Seems fairly obvious. Uh, someone presents you with a book. What do you know about the book? Someone has to tell you something about the book. The book doesn't explain itself. Protestantism said, we're going to take the book, but we're not going to listen to you. We're going to decide for ourselves. And so you have the absurd situation where Luther says, yes, sola scriptura, my only guide is the sacred scripture. Incidentally, I'm not going to accept any of the books that the Jews don't accept, although if it comes to that matter, the Jews don't accept the New Testament. Uh, but when it came to the Old Testament, if the Jews wouldn't accept them, Luther wouldn't accept them. Why? The real reason is because Maccabees gives, is a good ground. 1246. Exactly. Uh, purgatory, uh, praying for the dead. You know, so, and then when it came to the New Testament, and I've actually read Luther's prefaces. I was very interested. I, I read Luther's prefaces on it. Luther wrote these prefaces for his translation of the New Testament. There were some books in the New Testament that he just didn't like. Uh, James, Jude, Hebrews and the Apocalypse. And he placed them in an appendix at the back of his translation. Uh, in his table talk, it's recorded that he said, here at Wittenberg, we don't bother with James. We've, we've excised it from the canon. So he claims to be following scripture, but in fact he couldn't accept all of scripture because if he did accept all of scripture, he would have had to give up his ideas. Okay, so there's this bizarre relationship with scripture in Protestantism from the very start. They're tied to scripture. Uh, scripture is, um, how to put it, um, almost like an idol for Protestants. <laughs> it would be interesting to go into Calvin's attitude, because I read Calvin too, but I'll leave that. At the end of the day, the Protestants have to be able... You know how, um, for example, the, in order to update their faith, to apply their faith to today, 
But Protestants have to change the Bible. They have to do things to the Bible in order to be able to update their faith. Because they don't have the living magisterium that we do. So, for example, you know the way that Leo XIII, with Rerum Novarum in 1894, initiated this tremendous period of the teachings of the church on social doctrine. And now you can buy the compendium of the social doctrine of the church. Protestants don't have a magisterium. They don't have that type of authority. They only have the Bible. So what they do is they change their reading of the Bible from time to time. So that when they want to accept, for example, um, women ministers as uh, Anglicans and other people do, um, they, they have to have a way of reading the Bible that enables them to accept women ministers. Um, they don't have sacraments, and even though the sacraments are very clearly referred to in the New Testament, they have to be able to explain that away. So they, they have these strange ways of reading the New Testament. None stranger than what I'm going to mention tonight, um, which is the way that they say references to an organ... Sorry, not all of them. There are some Protestant scholars who actually turn out very good work. Uh, Richard Borkham and Earl Ellis, for example, are very good scholars. Um, they should be Catholic. But anyhow, a lot of Protestant scholars, the majority of them, say that there are different levels in the New Testament. And when you get references to a church and references to an organisation, these are late. They were not spoken by Jesus. So they have a particular idea of Jesus as a charismatic wandering prophet. Anything that doesn't fit into that very narrow view, they say, must be late. Un excuse me. Unfortunately, even some Catholics do that. One of the things I found when I was researching this thesis was that our own Raymond Brown and John Meyer do not accept certain things in the Gospel of Matthew, as act which our Lord said about Pharisees, as actually relating to Pharisees. They believe it relates to the church in Antioch because they don't believe that our Lord could have said those things about Pharisees for reasons of their own. So what, what is said by these scholars is that Jesus didn't teach ideas of orthodoxy and heresy. Jesus didn't establish a church. Jesus didn't establish a priesthood. Jesus did nothing in terms of establishing an episcopate or anything like that. The, new, the, the Gospels are then all dated late, with the possible exception of Mark. They're dated to after 70 AD. And that enables them then to say that these Gospels being late reflect the development of a church. So Jesus himself cannot possibly have taught these things. They will then say that the earliest material we have will be the Pauline epistles. For example, 1 Thessalonians is often said to be very early. The Gospel of John is always put later, 90 AD to 110 AD, generally speaking. Hebrews said to be pretty late. And then some of the other epistles, in particular the Petrine epistles, and John's epistles, very late. So, by seeing a sort of an evolution or development in the New Testament, they're able then to say that this reflects a historical development from this itinerant prophet to a fledgling organisation with a hierarchical structure. And the hierarchical structure is threefold. Bishop, priest, and deacon. And modern biblical scholars find that in the letters of Titus and to Timothy, which the vast majority do not accept as having Pauline origin. Incidentally, one of the best defences I read of Paul's origin, 
sorry, Paul's writing of Titus and Timothy, the pastorals, was written by a Mormon, if you would believe it. Many, many Catholics won't defend the Pauline authorship of the pastorals. A Mormon, I was in Salt Lake City recently and I picked up, uh, <clears throat> picked up her Mormon book on the Gospels of Paul. I thought this would be interesting. And it was, it was tremendously interesting. But they're actually defending uh, things which Catholics should be defending. So that's the idea as it relates to the New Testament. Um, our Lord does not teach um, a specific doctrine which is to be accepted by all people. Um, the idea is that he simply travelled around Palestine teaching, living a good life, working miracles or at least having a reputation as a miracle worker and people were free to then move out taking his doctrine in different directions so that you have a number of apostles, a number of disciples who go off and teach according to their own traditions. And this finds support, it said, in the um, Gnostic Gospels because a lot of the Gnostics actually claim to be um, apostolic, to have had their teaching from one or another apostle. And what's said now by many people is that this should be taken seriously. It's entirely credible that the Christian, that the, the teaching of Jesus crystallised in different schools. Certainly, many Catholic scholars say that there are different communities. You've probably heard about the Q community. Uh, Q, they say, is a document which was explains many parts where Matthew and Luke agree with one another, but the material is not found in Mark. And they say this document, Q, belonged to a community called Q. By looking at the material in Matthew and Luke, so Matthew and Luke which agree and are not found in Mark, they're able to say, therefore, the Q community did not believe in the resurrection, for example. They did not believe in the ascension. So there's a community, an early community, which just sees Jesus as a teacher, as believing that, this, that there is an end of the world was going to come shortly, and does not have the developed ideas which you find in the Gospels as we have them today, and certainly does not have the developed theology you find in the Gospel of John. <clears throat> well, this thesis found its chief proponent back in 1934, a German called Walter Bauer. Bauer began by taking Eusebius, the church historian, and saying, Eusebius tells a very convenient story. He says, Jesus founded a church, that church has continued down the years, and as the church has continued, various heresies have arisen in opposition to the Orthodox Church. That can't be the case, says Bauer, for some of the reasons I've given to you, and also because you simply cannot find a period in early Christianity where people are defending orthodoxy. <clears throat> people are not claiming to be orthodox in early Christianity. You can't find the Christian church. And he opened up his book by talking about Odessa and saying if you go to Odessa, you can't find a Christian church. What you find are Christians. And it never occurred to them, says Walter Bauer, to say to them, you can't be a Christian if you don't believe what I believe. 
for most of it could be said, was that they had a different outlook on Christianity. But you couldn't say, you are a heretic and I exclude you. That was his thesis. Orthodoxy, he said, began basically as a power grab. Being a good Protestant, no prizes for guessing, but Walter Bauer said that the chief villains in the power grab were two parties working in cahoots. The Jewish conspiracy and the Scarlet Woman of Rome. So that the idea of orthodoxy begins when Jewish Christians want to exclude Greek Christians and Rome wants to take everything over. And he finds this process evidenced in the letter of one Clement, which he dates to the second century AD, as opposed to scholars like um, Earl Ellis, the Protestant I mentioned, who dates it to before 70 AD. And the problem with the Jewish Christians he finds reflected in Paul's letter to the Galatians and then continuing through because Judaism is also a problem in Ignatius of Antioch. When it comes to Ignatius of Antioch, Bauer says that by constantly talking about heresy in terms of Gnosticism, Ignatius of Antioch is trying to establish himself as bishop. I'm sorry, <clears throat> this is the problem of speaking without notes. I should, just, I should just backtrack a little bit. The first bishop of Antioch was St. Peter. He was bishop of Antioch before he went to Rome. Incidentally, that, that supports the thesis that the true pope is the Maronite patriarch who is still the bishop of Antioch. And one day... I just hope the Patriarch claims his true right and sacks the imposter. <laughs> the second Bishop of Antioch was a chap known as Evodius or Eurodius, the good way. Christianity was known as the way. He didn't last long, it seems. Sometime during the reign of Nero, 54-68 AD, Ignatius becomes... Bishop of Antioch. The people who are expert in Greek, and I did a bit of Greek at uni, I did, and I didn't do too badly, but I'm not an expert in Greek. The people who are expert in Greek claim to be able to say that Ignatius' first language was not Greek. He probably had a Semitic language first, so they say. Certainly they say there are Asian styles. His style is famous as an Asian style. And there are many things about Ignatius of Antioch which are reflected in today's Maronite tradition. But I won't go into that. Ignatius of Antioch was Bishop of Antioch for anything up to 50 years. Finally, there was an earthquake during the era of Trajan. The Christians were blamed for it. He was condemned to die and was sent to Rome. This was sometime between about 105 and 107 AD. While he's being taken to Rome, he writes a series of letters. These letters have come down to us and they're extraordinary. There are four firsts in the letters. It's the first evidence outside the disputed pastoral epistles for what they call the monarchical episcopate, the system of bishops that we have today, clearly evidenced in Ignatius of Antioch. The second <coughs> is it's the first use of the term Catholic Church. That appears in Ignatius of Antioch. I'll just read this passage from his letter to the Smyrnaeans. All of you should follow the bishop as Jesus Christ follows the Father and follow the presbytery, that's the priests, as you would the apostles. 
respect the deacons as the commandment of God. Let no one do anything involving the church without the bishop. Let that Eucharist and he's very sacramental be considered valid but occurs under the bishop or the one to whom he entrusts it. Let the congregation be wherever the bishop is just as wherever Jesus Christ is there also is the universal church and the word he uses in Greek is kapolikos. Uh, the other thing that is found, the other two things that are found in Ignatius first are the reference to um, the virginity, the perpetual virginity of Our Lady and a creed outside the New Testament. There are arguably creeds in the Book of Acts, but the first creed outside the New Testament is found in Ignatius of Antioch. Now, the third thing that critics use when they want to attack the idea of an original orthodoxy in Christianity is Gnosticism. Uh, Karen King, the professor at Harvard University, uh, their theology school, you've probably seen her on TV, they put her on regularly. Yeah, National Geographic, when they do things about Gnosticism, always get Karen King. And um, she's tremendously learned, she's tremendously articulate, and she says, Walter Bauer approved. There is no orthodoxy in Christianity until they start to combat the Gnostics. There's a lot more details involving the Gnostic called Marcion. I won't go into them. But they say until the Gnostics started to say, this is what we believe and it's different from what you believe and we're right and you're wrong, there is no notion of orthodoxy in Christianity. There were a plurality of views. A thousand flowers were allowed to blossom beneath the sky. And it should be so today. I mean, you find that sort of thing even in something like the Anglican Church. Uh, in this diocese, we're going to have women bishops. In this diocese, we're not. Or if you live in the first diocese, but you don't like women bishops, we'll have a travelling bishop who will come around and, you know, this type of thing. And what passes for liturgy in one Anglican church would be considered a papist abomination in another Anglican church. And then what that Anglican church does would be considered a lowbrow version of Hillsong in um, Christchurch St. Lawrence, this type of thing. And this is the idea that people like Karen King say, why? Because a cache of documents were discovered at a place in Egypt called Nag Hammadi. It was a library which included, among other things, many Gnostic Gospels. Or, if there's an argument about the nature of what a Gospel is, many Gnostic teaching documents. If one person or one seminary had this library, then yes, there are an extraordinary number of views because these documents have all sorts of doctrines contained in them. Um, they have doctrines where our Lord did not actually take flesh. He only seemed to take flesh. Uh, the doctrine called Docetism, for example. It has uh, the Gospel of Thomas with... Um, the very highly developed asceticism, which that one is typical for, known for. It has a document called Thunder, Perfect Mind. Um, and some of the things that are said in that one are just scatological. Um, I wouldn't repeat them in front of women. Um, tremendous diversity of these documents, yet they are all buried in one urn. How can this be? It must be that there is this joyous diversity in Christianity, nothing like the uh, dogmatic tyranny uh, which uh, these people like Cardinal Pell and even worse, the man in the red slippers in Rome um, try to impose upon Christians today. So that's the idea. I don't accept the idea 
Did I accept that idea, I wouldn't be a subdeacon hoping to become a priest in the Maronite Catholic Church. Why don't I accept the idea? It's too simple for words almost. It's so obvious that it, miss, it, it can be missed. Uh, a very intelligent man once said to me, sometimes something is so obvious you can't see it. What is it that's so obvious you can't see it? It's this. As soon as you make a statement asserting the truth of that statement, you are implicitly saying that anything which is inconsistent with that first statement is wrong. As soon as our Lord taught anything, as soon as he said, Amen, Amen, I say unto you, any doctrine which was inconsistent with what our Lord said has to be wrong. This is why the idea that there is no orthodoxy in even the earliest strand of the New Testament is completely wrong. Now, as it happens, I think that all the Gospels were written before 70 AD. In fact, I think there are even good reasons for saying that John is writing his gospel precisely because he believes a supplement is needed to the synoptic gospels. And he is more precise factually. Incidentally, my professor in Johannine Corpus at the University of the Holy Spirit believes something similar. There are very many reasons to believe that John is giving precise information where he disagrees with the synoptics. The idea that you need four Gospels because one Gospel can never get the truth and you need four different viewpoints is just completely wrong. There are differences between the Gospels, but the differences show that the Gospel writers were trying to get it down accurately. There can be different perspectives on things, but at the end of the day, um, in everything that's essential, the Gospels agree. They supplement and complement one another. My own belief, and I'm, I'm not alone in this, though we're the minority, is that the Gospel writers knew what was being written by the other Gospel writers. The Raymond Brown idea that you've got four different communities and they don't know what the other community is doing um, won't withstand any intelligent scrutiny. So, um, incidentally, this idea that the Gospels indicate that the truth is necessarily plural, that you need a multiplicity of Gospels because one account can never be true, is not something I've made up to defame Protestants. It's found in the, in the Cambridge Companion to Jesus. Um, professors of New Testament are seriously arguing this. But it can't be right. As soon as you have any statement, that statement necessarily excludes other statements which would cut across it. That's the problem. In the letters of Ignatius, he says that other people are heretics. He doesn't talk about orthodoxy, a fact which Walter Bauer um, seized on. But why doesn't he talk about orthodoxy? Because it's implicit. If I talk about left, I'm implicitly got an idea of right. If I speak about heat, I implicitly have an idea of cold. If I speak about heresy, I implicitly have an idea of orthodoxy. And I read the passage to you, uh, one of many passages. Ignatius is forever saying, do nothing without the bishop. Let that Eucharist be considered valid that occurs under the bishop or the one to whom he entrusts it. That concept of validity implies the concept of orthodoxy, but the idea of orthodoxy is bigger in Ignatius than a series of doctrines. 
one of the things he says about heretics is they don't look after the widows, they don't feed the hungry, they don't help the homeless. They're so busy being all spiritual that they don't descend to the service of the people of God. That's one of his criticisms. His idea of orthodoxy is not purely doctrinal, though it starts there. It's also what you call orthopraxis, what you do in practice. And I think that's a very important thing to bear in mind. It's not just enough to have the right doctrine. We also need to be doing as best we can the right thing. It's not just a question of faith. It's also, as James said, a question of works. And not only James, the doctrine is found all throughout the New Testament, even in Paul. Faith and works go together. Faith has a certain, you could almost call it logical priority, because your faith will inform what you do. The same way that if I want to go from Clyde to Carlingford, I've got to go through Rose Hill, then Camellia, then Rydalmere stations. It's something similar in religion. Let's say, for argument's sake, that faith comes first. But by itself, just believing isn't enough. As it says, the devils believe. You've got to go through the other things. And to draw a line, a rigid line, between faith, hope, Charity is completely artificial and abstract. It's typical of the artificial. Look, I know we live in an ecumenical age, and I actually did extra work in ecumenism. Uh, my, my ecumenics lecture was very happy with me. But even though we live in an ecumenical age, I have to say it's typically Protestant to draw an analytical and artificial distinction between concepts and then make the concepts fight. Um, the idea of uh, justification by faith alone is typically Protestant. So even in Ignatius you'll find an idea of orthodoxy, though he doesn't use the word. Ignatius is always saying that you have to be with the bishop and he uses a symbol of music. He says that each person in the church is like a string on a harp. They all have to be attuned. What's the attuning process? The attuning process is being part of a church. That's why church is important, because it's the whole in which each part finds its meaning. Just as you, if you take one letter of the alphabet by itself, you can't get far. They need to be arranged in a significant way. Then they have meaning. Then you can create poetry. Then you can create plays and novels. That's what Ignatius speaks about. That, and, and he says it's the bishop, the priests and the deacons who are in charge of that. There's a so they are the ones who interpret the will of God through the scriptures which he quotes and the tradition of the church which he refers to and in doing that they harmonise. So although he may not use the word orthodoxy, anything which is in harmony with the tradition of the church and its threefold hierarchical structure he calls harmonia, harmony, or sometimes symphonia, symphony, sounding together. It's an equivalent concept to the concept of orthodoxy. And then I'll, I'll just finish by saying this about the Gnostics. Unfortunately, even one of my cousins has been bit by the Gnostic bug. He's read about Gnosticism through... Um, articles in, um, I don't know, um, on the internet through Wikipedia and um, he's come across things um, 
written in the Weekend Australian magazine about the Gospel of Judas and this type of thing and how there's this view that Judas was really the closest apostle to Jesus, all that type of stuff. And they see Gnosticism as representing freedom from the dogmatic tyranny of the Catholic Church. Not that many people have actually read the Gnostic documents themselves and those who do read them immediately see a big difference. The Gnostics are not the heroes of liberty that people think they are. The Gnostics were world-denying, world-hating and despised the ordinary Christians for the laxity and libertinism of their lives, of their lives. They didn't fast often enough. They did awful things like get married and thus continue this fleshly world. They, they weren't intellectual enough for the Gnostics. Gnosticism is actually a very repulsive faith and the documents themselves are almost impossible to read. I, I've tried many times, it's difficult to get through the Gnostic Gospels they're so abstract and full of um, fanatical concepts. I guess they must have died out because uh, there's probably none of them existed the, the, until they were discovered. They, they, they were never major. They, they were never major. And um, they, they, they have basically died out but the disposition to Gnosticism is always around. The idea that I have a special knowledge which you don't have and that knowledge makes me special. It's always around. They had a certain success at that time mainly because a lot of Jews were attracted to Gnosticism because Judaism was falling apart. I mean, from the Catholic perspective, the reason that Judaism ran into problems was because the Messiah came and then Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed and they had no way of explaining it. It had to change and it did. Rabbinic Judaism is a different thing from the Judaism of the first century BC. Yeah, look, that, that brings a lot of other concepts to mind. I, I won't go into them. But the basic thing I want to say is this. The idea that there can be legitimately different points of view is not in itself wrong. There can be different points of view about different things. Each church, each Catholic church, has in its theory, in its theology, and its practice four strands. Liturgy, spirituality, theology, and discipline. That's found in the Code of Canon Law. There are those four strands in each church. There can be legitimate differences about in, amongst people about matters relating to each of those four strands. For example, and sometimes, sometimes one issue can cover all four strands. For example, administering communion. How do you administer communion? How should communion be administered? Um, we've now got communion in the hand, that type of thing. But you could argue that communion should be should never be administered in the hand. Not that it's invalid to give it in the hand, that's not right. But as a matter of liturgy, spirituality, theology and discipline, all four of them together, I think there are very good reasons to say today especially we should be going back to a more reverent style of administering communion. But that's just my view. Other people um, have different views and they can legitimately differ from me on that. So there can be, there is a lot of space for different opinions in the Catholic Church and the Catholic Church is actually marked by a robust exchange of opinions um, on many different topics. That doesn't mean there's no concept of orthodoxy. That doesn't mean if it's true for me, it's true. And if it's true for you, it's true. 
even if those two things are contradictory. And it doesn't mean that if, for example, I don't accept women priests, and I don't accept women priests, I don't accept women priests because the priesthood is a sacrament that was instituted by our Lord, I can't change it in any of the essential particulars. It's just not competent. I, even if I wanted to have women priests, and some women would make better priests than a lot of men who are priests, I can't change it. It wasn't instituted by any human, it was instituted by him. And we have to be humble before that. But we can't say that that view is just my view and another view can obtain in the Catholic Church. Because that is a question which will define orthodoxy or heresy. It's an essential question. How do you know which questions are essential? and which questions aren't essential? It's a question of the mind of the church. The mind of the church is your guide there. You can't say, and if you say, I don't think that's essential, I don't think the concept of the sacraments is essential to Catholicism, what you're doing is choosing something and then saying, I will make that the important thing, and taking something else which the church says is essential and saying, I will de-emphasise that. That is the etymological meaning of heresy, picking and choosing. That's what heresy comes down to. And that's why there is a concept of orthodoxy, there is a concept of heresy in the church, and although it took a hundred years, perhaps, for it to be explicitly stated in clear terms, it was implicitly there the very day our Lord began teaching. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Father Johanna Aziz. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.